Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 28, Daniel chapter 9, the conclusion. Today we uh, finally find a way to conclude what's the molten core of uh, modern day end times prophecies. Daniel chapter 9 and that prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now we're going to get a bit technical, a bit historical today so that we can understand why Daniel 9 in the 70 weeks is such a difficult challenge to deal with and, and why we need to be careful not to accept the most popular interpretations of it as though the matter is settled and that we know exactly how it's all going to happen, in what order, when. And let us begin by noting that while this particular prophecy is in the book of Daniel, it's not Daniel that's doing the prophesying. Rather, this is a recorded oracle spoken by the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel spoke this oracle. It was given by God to Daniel as a divine word. In fact, calling it a vision would be incorrect. The vision that Daniel spoke of in chapter 20, uh, rather verse 21 of chapter 9 is referring back to chapter 8, not this chat with Gabriel. Now Daniel recorded what Gabriel told him as he was fully conscious. Now you know, I, as I thought about how to present this, this crucial, this hotly controversial last segment of Daniel 9 and how to discuss the so-called 70th week of Daniel, how best to deal with the built-in stumbling blocks to getting it as right as we can at this point in mankind's history. Several things crossed my mind. I want to share them with you before we undertake this effort. First it is that regardless of whether the discussion is about Daniel 9 or some other book and, and chapter in the Bible, there's a basic question that we must always ask ourselves. Do we really want the truth? I mean, I know that sounds so simple and straightforward, almost a cliche. And I doubt that any Christian or Messianic or religious Jew that I might ask that question of would answer it in any other way than to have a half-insulted look on their face and say, well, of course I do. However, my personal observation has been somewhat to the contrary. Rather, what I have observed is that what the largest segment of folks want is a doctrine that first and foremost validates their preferred already established lifestyle. And next in importance is that we want pleasant doctrines. We want pleasant doctrines that point the way towards an easy, safe, happy path along our faith journey. I'm no different. Why would I intentionally seek a difficult life accompanied with poverty and danger? Why would I or anyone want anything but good news? The reality is that of our natural selves, it's impossible to be otherwise. Thus the Lord gave us His Holy Spirit 
in order that we have renewed minds. It resets, it reboots our underlying thinking, our life expectations. It opens us to His leading. And yet, how nice it would be if we could only each self-define sin. Or if a Bible passage could mean what each of us wants it to mean. Because it makes us feel better. Truth becomes clay in our hands. Shaped, customized to each individual. God principles become elastic, moldable, relative according to our particular culture and personal comfort level, to our personal dreams and hopes, and to our various circumstances. The next thing that came to my mind was that human nature desires instructions and moral choices to be simple and uncomplicated. Gray areas, especially in the matter of religion, aren't usually welcomed. And whether it involves Judaism or Christianity, our religious leaders are well aware of this, and so they've endeavored to provide definite and simple answers to our theological questions and life choices. And that's so all coloring takes place within the the bold, well-drawn lines produced by denominational leadership. We tend to find that comforting, reassuring for the most part. Not too much thinking is required. No weighing facts. Just acquiescence and adherence to a set of basic common understandings that our social group, usually our congregation, accepts. A group member who might challenge those common understandings is labeled a heretic, usually invited to leave and go join some other group. And finally, as I believe history proves has always been the case, we tend as humans to regard whatever we read in the scriptures through the lens of the world as we perceive it in our day. Paul did that. Elijah did it. King David too. So that makes us susceptible to thinking that certain God-ordained Torah commandments are outdated or prophesied activities can't happen as precisely biblically prescribed because the conditions are simply not present. Nor can we imagine a circumstance where they might be. So to compensate, we'll kind of stretch and pull and reshape and and allegorize Bible passages to meet what we can see before us and allow little, if any, room for the mystery of unforeseeable changes that God says will come. Which brings us right back to my first question. Do we really want the truth? And you know, that's because the truth isn't always easy or plain. It isn't always what we hope it would be. Discovering the truth can involve significant changes in our lives. Maybe even admitting that perhaps we've been wrong in our thinking. The truth 
doesn't always give us our way or our choice. In fact, the truth isn't always immediately apparent. God's truth can be as restricting as it can in some ways be liberating. Because as believers, for us to be sanctified and consecrated and set apart for God, that means to live within boundaries we didn't create. To accept distinctions that can make our lives all the more challenging even though it pleases the Father in Heaven. So it is that when we study Daniel chapter 9 especially, we find ourselves wanting more definition. We want better and more complete answers than what those words give us. Or maybe we want different answers than what we get. But it's just not there. And so for many centuries, we've had a ready supply of writers of books and authoritative church leaders and learned rabbis who are happy to fulfill our our normal human desires for closure, for clarity, and for an especially happy ending in our search for divine agreement with our hopes and dreams. Unfortunately, this determination to fill in the blanks and to adopt rigid and sometimes fanciful interpretations based on sufficient information has led us away from the truth and from light instead of into it. And this is a very dangerous place to be. So we've spent a couple of weeks now discussing not firm conclusions, but rather a spectrum of likely possibilities that the holy texts allow that might answer this myriad of questions that naturally comes from the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which in many cases just leaves us hanging. And today's study is going to be no different because today is the finale. It's the study of Daniel's 70th week. So let's refamiliarize with this short passage to begin. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 24. Daniel 9, starting at verse 24, page 1112. Boy, we've been on this page a long time. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, for your holy city, for putting an end to the transgression, for making an end of sin, for forgiving inequity, for for bringing in everlasting justice, for setting the seal on vision and profit, for anointing this especially holy place. Now therefore, uh, rather know therefore and discern that seven weeks Uh, of years will elapse between the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed prince comes. It will remain built for 62 weeks with open spaces and moats. These will be troubled times. And then after the 62 weeks, Mashiach will be cut off and have nothing. The people of a prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end will come with a flood. And desolations are decreed until the war is over. 
He will make a strong covenant with leaders for one week. For half of the week, he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. On the wing of detestable things, the desolator will come and continue until the already decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. First, we have to define what Daniel's 70th week means. Now, biblically, it's the third of the three segments that make up the 70 weeks. Gabriel tells Daniel that the 70 weeks consist of an initial seven-week segment followed by a 62-week segment followed by a one-week final segment. And each segment is assigned certain God-ordained tasks or events that happens concurrent with it. Verse 27 says, He will make a strong covenant with leaders for one week. And if there is such a thing as a consensus among Jews and Christians, ancient and modern, it is that this statement in verse 27 is speaking of that 70th week. That final one week segment that consists of seven years. And there will be an undefined covenant of some sort established by someone called He. That's not real informative. (laughs) And there is no reason for us to, to disagree with what these sages, Jewish and Christian, have thought for century after century. But there are two basic questions that when answered are going to determine what direction we'll go when deciphering the meaning of this passage. The first question is, when are or was the beginning and the ending dates of those 70 weeks? And then the second question is, are the 70 weeks to happen consecutively, one right after the next, without pause, as is the natural reading of the passage? Or can some of the three segments that together constitute the 70 years kind of overlap? Or can there be gaps between the end of one segment and the start of the next? Or is the entire meaning of the term 70 weeks and all these different numbers of years given for each of the various segments, which are all based, by the way, on multiples of the number 7, are they merely symbolic? So time, and thus timing, is neither important nor intended in the meaning, and so it can't be known. See, it's because of the many different answers to these two fundamental questions that scholars and church leaders and rabbis have established such a wide variance as to their interpretation of the meaning and thus their doctrines of the 70 weeks and especially of the 70th week. Now I'm going to cut to the chase. Then we're going to back up and uh, get some explanation. The most known and popular view today is based on what's called the gap theory. And it is that there is a gap between the 69th week, the end of the 69th week, and the beginning of the 70th week. That is, the 69 weeks, which is equal to 483 years, that is 69 times 7, 
terminated sometime in the distant past, sometime between Antiochus Epiphanes of 165 BC and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That depends on your doctrine. And we've been living in this gap, a kind of holding pattern, ever since as we await the start of the 70th week, which is a seven-year period of time. Now this 70th week is primarily characterized today by referring to it as the seven year tribulation or as the great tribulation during which the rapture of the church occurs the antichrist appears the war of Armageddon happens and Christ returns. Some see it as a time when God begins pouring out his wrath indiscriminately on earth. It is a time future to us. So, for those who subscribe to this doctrine, the only real issues are when this is all going to happen and in what order these events are going to occur. Scholars call this particular theological viewpoint pre-millennial. And it is called pre-millennial because it occurs just before the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. And by the way, do not confuse premillennial with pre-tribulation. When you hear about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, probably all heard about that. This is only speaking about one specific aspect of the 70th week of Daniel. It's defining when during that final seven year period that the rapture of the church occurs. Is it at the beginning of the tribulation, in the middle, or at the end of it? Now I'm asked regularly, where are all these various ideas and doctrines? about the 70 weeks and especially the 70th week began. I mean, are these strictly modern thoughts or have they existed for some time? Did Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey invent it all? Is what we hear today and think we know about the end times the result of progressive revelation? Okay, Let's journey back in time for a few minutes to see what the earliest recorded thoughts of Christian and Jewish religious leadership were concerning Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. The earliest recorded opinion and teaching that's been found so far, interestingly enough, is that of the essence of Qumran. The essence are those people who created the Dead Sea Scrolls and hid them well enough that they went unfound for almost 2,000 years. Among their many writings is one called the Testament of Levi, and another document that scholars, as one scholars call Pseudo-Ezekiel. And there it is revealed that the Essens expected the 70 weeks of Daniel to expire in 2 or 3 A.D. Thus, they expected the arrival of the Jewish Messiah by that time. And interestingly, that's just about the time Jesus Christ was born. Now, what makes this even more interesting is that according to the Dead Sea Scroll scholar Roger Beckwith, 
due to the dating of these two works of the essence to about 146 BC or maybe just a little bit earlier. That means that the Essens wrote their thesis on Daniel only 15 to 20 years after the death of Antiochus Epiphanes, which is, at the, which is the time when modern liberal Bible scholars claim that the fraudulent book of Daniel was written. In other words, not when he was up in Babylon. And these same liberal scholars claim that Daniel was actually a coded document that was all about Antiochus Epiphanes and the first Jewish rebellion led by Judas Maccabee. So Daniel's 70 weeks ended with Antiochus Epiphanes and yet less than two decades later the highly educated and the pious Essens seem to believe that Daniel was true, valid, and it wasn't at all about Antiochus Epiphanes. Also that Daniel was a long accepted part of the Hebrew biblical canon. Wouldn't common sense tell us that if Daniel was only a recently written fraud that had never before been part of the Hebrew Bible, that the essence of all people would have been aware of it? I mean, goodness, such a thing would have been common knowledge among all the Jews. Would the essence have taken a book that they knew was pure fiction, less than 20 years old, and then proceed to treat it as though it was inspired of God and even included as a legitimate part of the Hebrew Bible when it wasn't. I mean, the thought's ludicrous. And it turns the essence into a bunch of fanatical liars, a devilish cult, when the evidence proves that they were anything but that. So the earliest discovered, well-ordered Jewish opinion that has been found is that the 70 weeks of Daniel is entirely about the Jewish people, sees the anointed prince of verses 25 and 26 as the Messiah, sees the 70 weeks, which from their viewpoint meant 490 years, as ending in 2 or 3 AD, which just happens to approximately coincide with the birth of Yeshua of Nazareth. However, theirs wasn't the only view in existence among the Jewish people at that time about the book of Daniel. The Jewish historian Demetrius, he was a Hellenist Jew, meaning that he was sold out to Greek culture. He wrote about another viewpoint that many Jews held long before the birth of Christ. It was that during the 70 weeks it was that the 70 weeks of Daniel terminated with the death of the high priest Onias III during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. And part of the reason for that viewpoint is that the Bible that he and many Jews of the diaspora uh, the one they used is called the Old Greek and it translates Daniel 9.26, you might want to look at your translation as I read this, into this. And after 7 and 70 and 62, the unction will be taken away and will not be, and the kingdom of the Gentiles will destroy the city and the temple, will, and the temple with the anointed one. See, for our purposes... 
The point is, this is a poor translation. And it was twisted to make it conform to a belief that Epiphanes was the anointed prince. Not the Messiah. Not Yeshua. And it does so partially by taking the numbers 70... 7 and 62 and then adding them all up to 139 years. And then without getting into too much detail, their math doesn't work out very well. And they did this because they knew they couldn't make the 490 years of Daniel end with Antiochus Epiphanes and the death of Onias. So they just kind of rewrote the passage. They changed the numbers around to their liking and turned 490 into 139. Well, that's a pretty easy way to do it. Now what is also important for us to know is that the Pharisees, yep, those Pharisees, seem to have three different viewpoints of the meaning of the 70 weeks. But whatever their disagreements, they had mostly to do with the timing of the coming of the Messiah. However, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Pharisees decided the Messiah hadn't come. In other words, they, of course, hadn't accepted that Yeshua was the Messiah, so they adapted and they decided that the 70 weeks of Daniel was not speaking about the coming of a Messiah at all. This view is the most prevalent view today among Judaism. It is that the 70 weeks of Daniel terminated with the Roman destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And in a work called the Seder Olam Rabbah, the claim is made that the 70 weeks of Daniel is referring to the 70 years of exile of the Jews to Babylon which is then followed by 420 more years in order to make it all add up to 490 years that they claim brings us to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. And by the way, Rashi agrees to this as well. The earliest Christian reference directly to uh, to Daniel 9, 24-26 is Irenaeus in his work entitled Against Heresies. In reality, all the earliest church fathers who wrote about Daniel mainly used Daniel as a means to denounce the Jewish people. Irenaeus was no different. However, he also linked the little horn from Daniel chapter 7 to the future Antichrist. He saw that who he says would be in power for three and a half years. So here we see the implication that the 70th week of Daniel was disconnected from the 69th week. Regardless of when the 69th week might have ended, the 70th week then was in the future, at least future to Irenaeus in 180 AD. So to be clear, as early as 180 AD, We have an early church father take the view that Daniel was real and valid, the 70th week was speaking of the second coming of a Messiah, that the 69th week of Daniel terminated sometime when Christ was on earth, 
and that there was a gap between the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th and that that 70th week was future, at least it was to Irenaeus. However, like most of the early church fathers, Irenaeus held to the view that the history of mankind was to be limited to a 6,000 year period from Adam to the time of the defeat of the Antichrist and the subsequent establishment of a global kingdom of God. We today call that global kingdom the millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ. But by his calculation that 6,000 years was going to end in 500 A.D. Therefore, most of the early church fathers thought that the end of history was going to happen at that time, 500 A.D. So 500 A.D. then, they thought, would be the time of Daniel's 70th week. Clement of Alexandria, about 200 A.D., wrote a commentary on Daniel that specifically called for a gap between the 69th and 70th weeks of Daniel. Interestingly, he was the first known Christian church father to acknowledge that Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy was about Israel. had nothing to do with the church. Hippolytus Africanus, about 220 A.D., wrote a Christian commentary on Daniel, and he anticipated a millennial kingdom to come at the end of a future 70th week of Daniel. He too thought this was going to occur about 500 A.D. He equated Daniel's little horn with the Antichrist who would rule for three and a half years. And he expected the ten horns of Daniel's beast would arise from out of the Roman Empire. On the other hand, Julius Africanus, who was a native of Jerusalem, wrote in about 235 AD that the 70 weeks of Daniel, well, it had already been completely fulfilled with the arrival of Christ. Julius came up with his own calculations about the 490 years because he didn't use the Gregorian calendar. He used something called the Roman Olympiad calendar. That meant, this means that according to the Olympiad calendar, a calendar that was based on the every fourth year Olympics, those 70 weeks amounted to 475 solar years. The church father Origen in 220 AD wrote that the 70 weeks of Daniel had been fulfilled during Christ's lifetime. A hundred years later, the famous church father Eusebius wrote that the term Mashiach, Messiah, anointed one, in Daniel 9 didn't refer to Jesus. Not to any individual at all. Rather, it spoke of the role of the high priests in general who governed the Jews after they returned to Judah from their exile to Babylon. He regarded the covenant spoken of, this to last one week, the covenant spoken of in Daniel 9.27 as the new covenant of Jesus Christ as opposed to the covenant made and enforced by the Antichrist. I think this is enough to make my point. that some very smart, sincere church authorities and great Jewish rabbis and leaders had vastly 
varying viewpoints on Daniel, dating back to almost 150 B.C. And that the views held today, even including the view about the 70th week as being detached from the previous 69 weeks and therefore being a long undetermined gap between the 69th and the 70th week and that the Antichrist would appear during the 70th week, these aren't new ideas. They're not new doctrines at all. Also understand, all of these early church fathers, they had John's book of Revelation available to them. And since that is the final book of the Christian Bible, and then the Holy Scriptures are closed up forever, what possible additional progressive revelation could there be for modern Christians that these early church fathers didn't have? I've often made the point that fulfillment of biblical prophecy ended at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and absolutely no additional prophetic fulfillment occurred until 1948 following World War II when Israel was reborn as a nation and then again in 1967 when Jerusalem was returned to the possession of the Jews and while indeed the fulfillment of these two prophecies signals our entry into the last moments of the era of mankind's history there is no additional information to be had only that what was predicted was fulfilled. So, how have we come to these several and varied but almost always rigid doctrines that we have today about the end times? Most of them aren't new. They're just warmed over. Quite ancient. Several of them were adopted and a bit reworked by different Christian factions after Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation in the 1500s AD. Even the most popular end times doctrine today as advocated by the bulk of the evangelical Christian church can be traced back to 200 AD. What is new in our time is the rampant speculation championed especially by Lindsay and LaHaye, among others, that has turned into non-negotiable church doctrine by some pretty major denominations and then taught as settled fact. We don't have to talk about it anymore. Just want to tell you about it. Well, as we approach the end of our study of Daniel 9, let me answer the obvious question you must have. Where do I come down on the 70th week? What ought we believe about the 70th week? Should we fundamentally agree or disagree with, say, LaHaye and Lindsay? Now, while I leave plenty of room for the possibility that the 70th week was fulfilled long ago and there is no future aspect in Daniel's 70th week, for me, The passage of history coupled with a plain reading of scripture, including the book of Revelation, by the way, indicates that the most likely possibility of the range of possibilities seems to be that 
elements of the 70th week of Daniel belong both in the past and in our future. I'm not trying to split a rail here. Therefore, the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week is still ahead of us. And this some now, some later, or it happens once and then it happens again, nature of Bible prophecy, well, that's on full display with Daniel's prophecy as with most others. I want to explain that to you. I have shown you that the Bible speaks of not one but two latter days. Achrit Hayamim. And depending on where one lived in history, you either looked forward to the first latter days, which was when Christ came the first time, or, like with us, we look forward to the second latter days, when Christ shall come again. The biblical definition of the latter days seems to be that it is that time immediately leading up to and during the arrival of Messiah. And as we now know, there's two arrivals, but there's one Messiah. The world conditions leading up to each of these two latter days are eerily similar. And we need to grasp that Messiah did not fulfill his entire mission at his first appearance, nor were the six goals listed in uh, verse 24 completed. There is more to come. The first part of his mission was to come as a sacrificial lamb in order to end the purpose for the sin offering. The second part of his mission, this unfulfilled part, is to come as a warrior and a king to defeat the forces of evil and to establish everlasting righteousness and to rule over a tangible, earthly kingdom of God worldwide that replaces all human created government. In my opinion, what has caused so much confusion and disagreement among scholars since the early church fathers and even before with the earliest Jewish scholars who tried to understand Daniel is that they could not envision two latter days. That's the problem. All they could envision was one. And we have scholars today who still can't make a distinction between the latter days and the end times, meaning the end of the world. And that's largely because of their ignorance of Hebrew and denial that the Old Testament has any value or any relevance to modern believers. But they are also tied to denominational agendas and doctrines. So they cannot admit or see the existence of two sets of latter days. And yet, ironically, (laughs) this is ironic, they have no problem with the understanding that the ancient prophecies speak of two appearances of Messiah. Two appearances of Messiah is something that a few of the early Jewish 
or rather Hebrew sages saw a hint of, but most didn't, and something that only in hindsight became much more clear after Yeshua died and was resurrected. Why? First, because it's hard to understand. I mean, it's anything but obvious in the prophecies as they're written. And second, because this concept doesn't fit with so many set in concrete doctrines and agendas of synagogue and church leadership. So, since I presented you with what seems to be a number of possibilities, now let me expound a bit on what I think is the more likely of the bunch. But with the caveat that in no way should you take this to mean that this is how it must be or that this is an official Seed of Abraham Ministries End Times Doctrine. It's not. <clears throat> so let's define some terms. Based on my supposition, the 69th week ended either with Christ's death, perhaps at his triumphal entry, and there has thus far been a nearly 2,000 year gap as we await for the 70th week to begin. First, the anointed prince, Mashiach Nagid, of verse uh, 25 in Daniel 9, is Yeshua. Yeshua HaMashiach. Second, the anointed one, in verse 26, is also Yeshua. Third, the prince yet to come, of verse 26, is in relation to the first latter days. This turned out to be Antiochus Epiphanes. But, because this element of the prophecy repeats itself, it is also in relation to the second latter days, and when that happens, it will be the Antichrist, whoever that turns out to be. The person of verse 27, who will make a covenant with the many for one week, 70th week, is the Antichrist. However, this person who puts a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering is both in relation to the first latter days, so that's Antioch's Epiphanes, is also in relation to the second latter days, and so that will be the Antichrist. And to in verse 27, the desolator in relation to the first latter days was Antiochus Epiphanes and in relation to the second latter days is again the Antichrist. Do you see the pattern? Now, giving you the easy part. As for the timing of the final happenings of the second, 70th week, it must come after Yeshua came the first time. This is very clear because we have this in Matthew 24. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. Matthew 24, 15 through 25. So when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand this illusion, <clears throat> that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. If someone is on a roof, he must not go down to gather his belongings from his house. If someone is in the field, he must not turn back to get his coat. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you don't have to escape in the winter or on Shabbat. 
For there will be trouble worse than there has ever been from the beginning of the world until now. There will have been nothing like it again. Indeed, if the length of time had not been limited, no one would survive. But for the sake of those who have been chosen, its length will be limited. At that time, someone says to you, Look, here's the Messiah. There He is. Don't believe Him. For there will appear false messiahs and false prophets. They'll perform great miracles, amazing things, so as to fool even the chosen if possible. There, I've told you in advance. In other words, Daniel's warning about the abomination of desolation that's to occur during the 70 weeks couldn't have been entirely fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphany's days of 164 BC because here around 30 AD we have Yeshua warning his followers that it's a future event. Right? Pretty logical. He quotes Daniel by name. We don't have to guess. And yet... Epiphanies indeed did desolate and desecrate the Holy Temple by setting up an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, sacrificing a swine to it, declaring himself to be God. However, we also know that the first part of Yeshua's warning did not happen with Antiochus Epiphanes because the opening words of Matthew 24 are as Yeshua left the temple and was going away his Talmudim, his disciples came and called his attention to its buildings and he answered you see all these yes I tell you they will be totally destroyed not a single stone will be left standing Epiphanes didn't destroy the temple he didn't destroy Jerusalem However, about 40 years after Yeshua's pronouncement here in Matthew, the Romans did. And yet the Romans did not set up an abomination. They didn't set up an idol in the Holy of Holies. They didn't ritually desecrate the temple as described in Daniel. They simply dismantled it and tore it down. So here we have two instances that each partially fulfills Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks but occurring more than two centuries apart. And this event is going to happen again a third time. And by the way, this is not unusual in prophetic fulfillment. We know there will be a third time because it will be more like the first time with Epiphanies because there is no statement that the Antichrist is going to destroy the temple. He's merely going to desecrate it by setting up an image of himself in the Holy of Holies and in the doing declare himself to be God. We learn from Revelation 11 and 13 that this Antichrist is yet to come and it cannot happen until well after the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD because, historically speaking, John didn't even write Revelation until the years following the destruction of the temple. Not a tough timeline to figure out. Daniel 27, a 9.27 rather, also tells us that for half the week the sacrificial offering will be stopped in the temple. 
There is good evidence, I don't have time to detail for you today, that, is, that it was for three and one half years that the sacrificing stopped during the time of Epiphanes until Judas the Maccabee restored it. And we have evidence in Revelation 11 and 13 that this same thing is going to happen again with the Antichrist. You can go read it for yourself. They're not long chapters. But here is where modern speculation begins to run rampant. One of the key premises of the premillennial end times viewpoint that one by LaHaye and Hal Lindsey that they agree with is that exactly at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, that is three and one half years into that final seven year period, exactly at the midpoint, the Antichrist will cut off the sacrifices and put an image of himself in the Holy of Holies. Most of you have probably heard this or read about it. Yet, here, I'm going to read to you quick excerpts of seven additional references to that 42 months or three and one half years and to the term time, times, and half a time that many insist means three and a half years or 42 months that involves Israel and the beast, that evil beast of Daniel's vision who is the Antichrist. Listen to these. Daniel 7.25 He will speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law. And the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Daniel 12.7 The man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river raised his right and left hands towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half and that it will be when the power of the holy people is no longer being shattered that all these things will end. Revelation 11.2 But the court outside the temple, leave that out, don't measure it, because it's been given over to the Goyim, the Gentiles, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. Revelation 12.6 And she fled into the desert where she has a place prepared by God so that she can be taken care of for 1260 days. It's referring to Israel. 12.14 But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly to her place in the desert where she is to be taken care of for a season and two seasons and half a season away from the serpent's presence. And Revelation 13.5 It was given a mouth speaking arrogant blasphemies and it was given authority to act for 42 months. See, there's nothing in any of these passages that clearly says that in the final seven years the Antichrist is going to appear precisely at the 42-month point and desecrate the temple. Nothing there says that. It's also regularly assumed that 42 months equals 1260 days, which equals time, time, uh, time, times, and half a time. Maybe. But let me tell you something. 1260 days is only 42 months if we go by a 360 day year. And a 360 day year is not a lunar year, it's not a solar year, and it's not a Hebrew year. I don't know whose year that is. And there is nothing that proves that time times and half time means three and a half years, even though it does seem likely. But there are also other reasonable possibilities. There's nothing in these verses that presents, prevents the appearance of the Antichrist at the beginning of the seven years or at any point 
during the seven years. And the reason that modern day prophecy teachers insist on the midpoint of the seven years for the appearance of the Antichrist is really the result of a mirage. The main reason that premillennial folks say that the Antichrist appears and desecrates the temple at precisely the midway point of the final seven years has to do with Daniel 9.27 because there it says for half a week this person will put a stop to the sacrifices and these folks say half means halfway through so some English translations yours might say it in the midst of the week And these folks say that since half means halfway through, we get this idea that we're going to go 42 months, then it happens, we go 42 more months. But see, the Hebrew word used here in Daniel chapter 9 is chetzi. Chetzi. And it doesn't mean midst, but it does mean half. Half a bottle of milk doesn't mean in the midst of the milk, does it? And being in the midst of a crowd doesn't mean half a crowd. The two terms aren't interchangeable. See, the Hebrews have a word for midst. It's tabek. Indeed, it means in the middle of something, the halfway point. So if Daniel had said that at the Tavek of the week the sacrifices will be stopped, indeed that would indicate that about the midpoint it's when it would happen. But that's not what the scriptures say. They say in the Chetzi of the week, half of the week. So it's saying that for half of the seven years, for 42 months out of those seven years, the sacrifices will be stopped. The 42 weeks is a duration of time. It doesn't say when that, for, that, that, that duration of time begins. And as, the end of, as at the end of Daniel chapter 9, we're not told. So, now you have it. Satisfied? You have heard now what is actually in Daniel chapter 9. It is completely distinct from all the opinion and speculation that flies around. Although admittedly, the next three chapters of Daniel and the book of Revelation will give us some additional detail. Now we're going to deal more with the end times as we move into the final chapters of Daniel and next week... We'll begin with Daniel chapter 10.